And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing pretty good. Getting busy. At work. (laughs) Let me clarify. Uh, How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the show today. We have a real treat. Yes, I guess. Every week we bring a real treat. That's right. Yeah. Yep, that's a good way of looking at it. So today we are watching Son of Dracula from 1943, the long-awaited third film in Universal's Dracula series. Yeah, long-awaited. Yeah. Universal's second attempt to try and make a sequel to Dracula, really. Since yeah. it doesn't really follow up on Dracula's daughter at all. Yeah. So They're trying to get some some more of that Frankenstein money. Yeah, I mean, they've had a bunch of Frankenstein sequels at this like point. Like five or six? Yeah, Wolfman's had... Two. ...a sequel um, that was also a crossover. Uh, they've had a lot of mummy movies. But the Dracula franchise has kind of had a bit of a weird time of it at Universal. Do you want to take us down memory lane and (laughs) sort of refresh our uh, recollections of sort of how Dracula's been doing up to this point? Sure. So the movies we've had before now were 1936's Dracula's Daughter. That's episode 62, if you want to take a listen. And before that was 1931's Dracula. Just plain old Dracula. And that's episode 24, if you want to check in on that. And also, I think, episode 25 for the Spanish version. Yeah, I completely forgot that that happened. Mm-hmm. Spanish Dracula. Before I can kind of tell you about the movies, let me tell you a little bit about the original thing, which is the novel Dracula from Bram Stoker. So this novel was published in 1897. It's gothic horror. While it was not the first vampire novel, it is the one everyone thinks of when they think of vampires. It codified a lot of the, like, rules and tropes. Yeah, solidified the tropes and conventions. Um, For example, there being, like, vampire wives, so I guess polyamory, (laughs) (laughs) that a vampire needs to have dirt from its original grave to sleep in. Um, The fact that it can shapeshift to a wolf, bat, rats, mist, so on and so forth. These types of tropes, some of them existed before, but the novel really solidified these as part of vampire lore trademark. Yeah, I think I think it's the the idea of like the exact combination we see in Dracula becomes kind of just the standard for vampires after that. Whereas a lot of these things may have existed in folklore before, you know, here and there, but it's like now that's it's this exact set now. Yeah. There have been many adaptations of the novel. Um, Stoker himself actually adapted it first to theater in 1897, so later that same year. The first adaptation we saw was F.W. Murnau's 1922 film Nosferatu, episode 10. And what's interesting with Nosferatu is it emphasized the plague associations of vampires. Mm. That's not 
explicitly there in the novel, but it's definitely more in the Germanic lore of mm-hmm. vampires. Yeah. Dracula as a piece of media, really, um, was very, very popular. Uh, it made it into theater, uh, like I said, the same year it was published by Stoker. Um, again, in London in 1924, made its way across the pond to the U.S. Broadway circuit in 1927, and all of that kind of leads into a direct line into the 1931 Universal film, Dracula. Mm-hmm. By the way, Dracula is ranked number 12 on the list. Still riding high. Yeah. Um, so a couple episodes ago when we were covering the 43 Phantom of the Opera, I mentioned how Universal had kind of carved out its horror niche with the 1925 and later 29 Phantom of the Operas. 1931's Dracula was kind of designed to capitalize on this newfound niche. Because the play itself was very popular, Universal hired John Balderston to adapt his Broadway adaptation to screen. Now, it's been a while, so let me just quickly recap. I guess it's only been like 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a lot of episodes. Years. Uh, yes, nearly 100. Um, so here's the plot. Renfield is a solicitor, and he's headed to Castle Dracula <laughs> to help the Count move to England. Uh, he's made into a thal during this time, and uh, helps Dracula with the trip. Back in England, Renfield is sent to a sanitarium. At the same time, Dracula begins preying on Mina Seward and Lucy Weston. After Lucy's death and Mina's declining health, her family contacts Professor Van Helsing, who says it's vampires! Van Helsing and Mina's fiancé Harker follow Renfield to find Dracula's coffin, stake him, thereby saving Mina from vampirism. Mm-hmm. The end. Yep. The film adaptation relies on the vampire tropes established in the novel, but does kind of expand on them by adding a bit of the sexual nature of the vampire and feeding. Mm -hmm. Um, And it could be argued that that's brought in with Lugosi playing Dracula even in the Broadway play, but I stand by the fact that the very sexual nature of feeding didn't quite exist before this film. Yeah, I think what it is is that Bella Lugosi brought a kind of charm... Sex appeal. Yeah, sex appeal, a kind of charming romanticism to Dracula that previous actors hadn't done, right? Like, Nosferatu, Dracula's this, like, disgusting rat guy, and the earlier stage versions, he was kind of an old man. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, take that and the novel's kind of creation of what's known as invasion literature. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some, like, xenophobic themes with the invasive foreigner coming in and taking your girls. Yeah. The film, while largely shot in proscenium, the performances, castle cinematography, and Todd Browning's direction made a smash hit. It established Lugosi as a horror cultural icon as Dracula, for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. Maybe for worse. Before Dracula, many horror movies were kind of mysterious, horror comedic, old dark house kind of thrillers. Yeah, they were Scooby-Doo episodes, where the monster always turned out to be some old man in a suit. Mm-hmm. And Dracula was very interesting in the way that it was like, nah, dog, it's supernatural. And after Dracula, 
literary adaptations of spooky supernatural stories was established as a surefire way to box office success. Yes. And occasional problems with censors. But we'll get to that yeah. right now as we fast forward five years to 1936's Dracula's Daughter. Um, like I mentioned, that's episode 62, and it's ranked 51. Hmm. What could have happened? <laughs> So by this time, horror in general had been struggling to deal with the now-enforced Hollywood production code. The only horror movie to really know how to work with the code, in our opinion anyways, is Bride of Frankenstein mm. in 1935 from James Whale. Um, Jethro's daughter really doesn't know how to do any of that. And ultimately, this film would be the proverbial nail in the coffin with horror's fall from box office popularity. Yes. Lugosi had also had his own fall from grace. He doesn't appear in the film, both because Dracula died in the last one, um, not that that has ever stopped Universal, but he'd also burned bridges at Universal, starting with his refusal to play Frankenstein's creature back in 31. So here's the plot <laughs> of Dracula's daughter. Professor Van Helsing is changed to Von Helsing, not for any real reason, but... Um, Dracula's daughter picks up right after the end of Dracula with Von Helsing being arrested for murder. And he says, no, it's not murder. He was only a vampire. He was already dead. <laughs> so he's arrested. Um, and he enlists the help of psychiatrist Dr. Jeffrey Garth to prove that he is sane and therefore did kill a vampire. Meanwhile, the titular Dracula's daughter, Countess Maria Zaleska, is with her thrall, Sandor, and they are tracking down Dracula's body. She believes that she can end her own vampirism by destroying Dracula's body. But this does fail. So she turns to Dr. Garth, believing that her vampirism is maybe all in her head. Sure. Yeah, who I knows? I feel like that's a thing you would know or not. Yeah, there's, yeah. When these sessions fail, Maria kidnaps Garth's fiance, Janet. And takes her back to Transylvania. Um, and in this way is trying to persuade Garth to stay with Maria forever. Um, to become her vampire mate. Because it goes off the rails. Yeah. Sandor, who is upset that Garth is basically getting ahead of him in line as the next vampire. Decides to shoot Maria with an arrow. So she dies. And then Sandor is in turn shot by police with Von Helsing who arrive just in time. Yeah. The end. Bit of a mess. Bit of a mess. Um, it hit a lot of the same plot and thematic beats as Dracula, despite having kind of a unique premise in the opening. It does continue, in a neat way, the sexuality themes with the twist of lesbian relationships. Notably, the fact that Maria attacks women. Dracula, with the exception of Renfield, only attacked women. Mm -hmm. And with the sexuality feeling of it... It is a very heterosexual type of theme, whereas in Dracula's Daughter, there's a lot of lesbian readings of it. And yeah. rightly so, I think. And mostly because of the way that the earlier film had already coded vampire feeding as sexual. Yeah. Now, it should be said that um, Dracula's Daughter isn't the first piece of media to bring in like lesbian undertones with vampires. Um, the first would be Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla from 1872, which actually predates 
Dracula by 15 years. Mm. And if you want to hear more about Carmilla, we talk about it in detail in our vampire episode, episode 31. So Dracula's daughter ultimately became a series of, like, greatest hits from Dracula rather than something original or unique, like Bride of Frankenstein, because it wasn't really able to work with the code. It wasn't Mm -hmm. really sure how to queer code anything. It wasn't really sure how to even be original, honestly. Shackled by the code and staked by the dwindling popularity of horror overall, Dracula's daughter spelled the end of Hollywood horror until 1939's Son of Frankenstein. Right. And, you know, that's three years later, and um, I think the title of that episode is The Renaissance of Horror, because it brought horror back in and was very well done. Um, It was a huge box office smash, so I suspect with the naming of this film, Son of Dracula, Universal's trying to tap into that box office money a little bit. Yes. Yeah, one of the most surprising things about Son of Dracula is that it is coming out in 1943, that they didn't get around to it sooner. Mm -hmm. We've sort of seen a lot of vampire movies up to this point, and a few other horror movies, have a hard time breaking away from what was done in the original Dracula. You talked about Dracula's Daughter being a greatest hits movie, but like so many other vampire movies we've seen have had the same problem of just repeating things from Dracula. Uh, Mark of the Vampire did that. You know, other ghosty movies like uh, White Zombie, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't even a vampire movie, but plays a lot of the same notes. Um, it's almost like Dracula itself was so groundbreaking in establishing the horror genre and vampires on film that anything else, like, even if it doesn't mean to, kind of taps into it um, and sometimes parodies it. Like, Mark of the Vampire mm-hmm. purposely taps into Dracula. Yeah, and, and you know, and then there's, um, what was the one with George Zuko, where he was Dracula and Van Helsing? Dead Men Walk from earlier in 1943, uh, which was also like a Dracula rehash. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of almost a feeling of like, well, that's what vampires are, right? Like not having the capacity to come up with something new. I suspect one of the reasons why Son of Dracula didn't happen earlier might have to do with Legosi and the kind of continuing difficulties that Universal had with him. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you pointed out that he had kind of burned his bridges, refusing the role of Frankenstein's monster. But that was the start. There was a lot more yeah, going there, on. There was the box office failure of Murders in the Rue Morgue, and then his increasing reliance on morphine, uh, which caused him to be a bit of a, um, just like a risk to take on on a big movie. By the 1940s, you know, the Lemleys had kind of been ousted from Universal, and that allowed Lugosi to kind of come back to the studio to a mild degree, but only ever in minor roles. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, being Igor in the Frankenstein movies, for instance. He did eventually play the Frankenstein's monster in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, but most of his scenes were cut from the final edit. Lugosi's advancing age, he was (laughs) 61 years old in 1943. That makes it sound like it was a disease. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, he's getting older. Yeah. <laughs> Time goes on. Um, and his addiction to morphine, both of these things, I think, made him a bit of a liability in the studio's eyes. And also, I think, made it harder to buy the idea of him coming back as Dracula if Dracula is supposed to be sexy. 
and charming. And immortal. And immortal, sure. But, like, I think the main, you know, concern would be whether Lugosi was still, like, appealing um, in the same way as he was in 1931. Sure. Um, What Son of Dracula kind of ends up being is kind of like Universal's version of Incredible Hulk. Which one? That's what I mean. The Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton. Yeah. Because... So if I can back up and explain that analogy, The Incredible Hulk is the Marvel Cinematic Universe movie that everyone forgets exists because they ended up recasting Edward Norton with Mark Ruffalo eventually. But that movie in itself is like a pseudo-sequel, pseudo-reboot to the Ang Lee Hulk. because with Eric Bana. Right. Because the Edward Norton movie has no origin story in it. And kind of picks up Bruce Banner right where he left off at the end of the Ang Lee movie in South America. But it's also kind of separated from that movie. It never directly references it. It And that movie wasn't very successful, so Incredible Hulk was kind of an attempt to reboot and do a sequel at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what Son of Dracula is. It's a bit of a soft reboot of the Dracula franchise without remaking the original movie. And I think what enabled it to happen was by 1943, there was a new horror star at Universal who had kind of replaced Lugosi and Karloff. And that was Lon Chaney Jr., who had originated the role of the Wolfman, and Wolfman had kind of been Universal's most recent big big hit. hit. And by this point, he has now played the Wolfman, Frankenstein's monster, and the mummy. So by playing Dracula in this film, he becomes the only actor to have played all four of the big Universal monsters in sort of the classic era of the Universal monster movies. Mm-hmm. Now, we're not saying he does it well. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> so casting Cheney, I think, was more about the idea that they were casting Cheney in everything at this point. You know, they were even going to have him be the Phantom of the Opera uh, until that changed. And the idea that that was how they were selling their horror brand at the, at this time, right, was based on the name Lon Chaney Jr., which was, of course, also designed to make you think of Lon Chaney Sr. Yeah. Um, Chaney had a drinking problem, but in the Hollywood of the 1940s, that wasn't seen the same way as Lugosi's drug habit. Mm-hmm. And Chaney was also only 37, thus presumably more capable of being attractive and having sex appeal than Lugosi at this point in his career. Similar to how Dracula's daughter was vague on the topic of whether Gloria Holden's character, Maria Zaleska, was in fact Dracula's daughter or not, Son of Dracula is equally noncommittal over whether Cheney's character, the vampire Alucard, is the son of the original Count Dracula or a pseudonym for the Count himself. Mm-hmm. but the confusion is exacerbated by the fact that any descendant of a Count Dracula would also be called Count Dracula. That's the way that names and titles work. <laughs> so, I don't know, we'll watch it, we'll make a call uh, for ourselves, whether Cheney's supposed to be the same character as Lugosi or not, but I think that vagary of, like, he's Count Dracula, but maybe he's not exactly Lugosi's Count Dracula, was another way for Universal to find a way to get this franchise on its feet again and moving forward in a way that separated them 
from Lugosi and all of that, and would presumably let them keep Dracula going in a way that would lead to teaming him up with Frankenstein and the Wolfman and all these other characters, Mm -hmm. um, which would eventually happen. Personally, I've always been under the impression that Dracula's daughter, son of Dracula, aren't like, oh, I got a lady pregnant. It's, uh, no, I I infected them with vampirism at some point. Right, they are a, a vampire spawn as opposed to a sort of loin spawn. <laughs> so the story for Son of Dracula was written by Kurt Siedmack, the writer of I Walked with a Zombie, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, Wolfman, uh, right, The Ape, Black Friday, Invisible Man Returns, etc., etc. Big deal. So yeah, at this point, Siedmack was valued enough as part of Universal's horror team that he was able to get his brother... Robert Siedmack assigned as this film's director. Oh. So Robert was two years older than Kurt, born in 1900 in Dresden to Jewish parents. Like his brother, he went into film. He directed his first feature film in 1929. That was People on Sunday, which was co-written by Kurt and also screenwriter Billy Wilder. It was the last silent film made in Germany. And in 1930, Mack would also direct the first sound film at Ufa, Abschied. When the Siedmack brothers were attacked by Joseph Goebbels in the press in 1933, they made the decision to leave Germany and flee to Paris. Mm -hmm. There, Robert directed a wide variety of films that were fairly successful until the fall of Paris forced him to join his brother in America. Oh, so they've been separated for a while. Yes, uh, Kurt went to America first, but Robert's career in France was quite successful, so he stayed behind. Once in America, Robert directed B-movies for the likes of Republic Pictures until Kurt got him a seven-year contract with Universal, starting with Son of Dracula. Nice. Robert returned the favor by firing Kurt from the writing of Son of Dracula. Oh my god. Robert felt that a director needed to be able to criticize and change the story of the writer and didn't feel comfortable introducing that into his relationship with Kurt as Kurt's higher position at Universal could sort of confuse the issue of who should have the final say between the two brothers. All right, that probably made family dinners a little awkward. Kurt apparently thought it was a reasonable decision. (laughs) Well, that's good, at least. So, to turn Kurt's story into a screenplay, Robert brought on Eric Taylor, uh, one of uh, Universal's sort of horror movie co-writers. He has, in the past, worked on Black Friday, the 1941 Black Cat, Ghost of Frankenstein, and most recently, the 1943 Phantom of the Opera. Not all of those are horror movies, Ben. Or good. Joining Lon Chaney Jr. in the cast is a team of reliable Universal Pictures stalwarts. The romantic lead is 32-year-old Robert Page, who had bounced around from Warners to Republic to Columbia to Paramount uh, since starting his career in 1934 before finally landing at Universal in 1941, which would be his home for the next five years. During that time, he was frequently cast as a romantic lead in a variety of Universal movies, um, whether they be horror films like this, or Abbott and Costello movies, or in 1944, when he became the only actor ever allowed to sing with Diana Durbin in Can't Help Singing. He just couldn't help it. Yeah. 
normally Deanna Durbin, um, like obviously other actors sing in her movies, but she never did duets. No one ever sang at the same time as her. It was always just her voice. Diva Diana Durbin. Mm-hmm. The secondary villain in Son of Dracula is played by 23-year-old actress Louise Alt-Britton, whose sister in the film is played by the ever-reliable Evelyn Ankers, who is 25 years old at this point and who we have previously seen in Wolfman, Ghost of Frankenstein, and most recently, Captive Wild Woman. The cast of the film also includes Frank Craven, who was the originator of the role of the stage manager in the original stage production of Our Town, J. Edward Bromberg, who's perhaps best remembered as Don Quintero in the 1940 version of Mark of Zorro, and was last seen by us as one of the owners of the Opera House in 1943's Phantom of the Opera. 81-year-old actress Adeline DeWalt Reynolds, who started acting at the age of 78 and made a career just out of playing old women. And finally, Etta McDaniel, the sister of Academy Award-winning actress Hattie McDaniel. Uh, who won for the role of Mammy in Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. Frank Craven, is he related at all to Wes Craven? Or Craven the Hunter? No. <laughs> so this film is often cited as the first on-screen transformation of a vampire into a bat, and vice versa. Uh, and while that is certainly true of the universal vampire movies, which would often just sort of show the bat, cut away, cut back, there's a person. Mark of the Vampire from MGM in 1935 actually did attempt to do this before now. Um, Yet the chick had, like, vampire wings on her arms. and then flew down. Yeah, Um, that was sweet. There was also a sort of much simpler shot showing the rubber bat on the fishing line that then crossfaded to Bella Lugosi Mm -hmm. uh, in the same shot. But what we get here is a much more explicit uh, special effect of uh, an animation method used mm-hmm. by John Fulton to basically animate the bat turning into the person. Also, Mark of the Vampire is weird because they, like, aren't in technically plot, vampires. Yeah, in the plot, they aren't vampires. So it's, it, yeah. So Son of Dracula was released on November 5th, 1943. It was a mild success, enough given its small budget. And Robert Seedmack was able to embark on a run of critically acclaimed film noir for Universal, such as The Phantom Lady, Christmas Holiday, The Suspect, The Killers, Dark Mirror, and Crisscross. Uh, 1946's The Killers is really the big one there. Mm-hmm. Among contemporary critics, Son of Dracula is often praised for its atmosphere and criticized for Cheney's performance. <laughs> criticized for... Everything else. <laughs> well, how are we watching this? So Son of Dracula is available on DVD and Blu-ray as part of the Dracula Legacy Collection. And you can also find it online on the Cineplex app, iTunes, the Google Play Store, and YouTube. Well, folks, you can find it then on our YouTube playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You'll have to rent it, but you can find it there. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Son of Dracula from 1943, directed by Robert Siedmack. See you on the other side, everybody. Hello, I am Dr. 
Captain Chris, the host of the Radio Horror Network of shows, including the Dead TV Podcast, Supernatural Creatures and Lore, and the Lost Boys Movie Minute Podcast, with some of my co-hosts, like for the Dead TV Podcast, Mr. Zeneca. Hi, I'm the co-host for the Dead TV Podcast, Occult Knowledge, Adam's Family, and Cursed Objects, and more. Listen to us. And then for the Supernatural Creatures and Lore podcast, I have B-movie screen queen actress Mel Heflin. I'm horror actress Mel Heflin, and I appear in such flicks as Dick Nato and Mrs. Claus. And then for the Lost Boys Movie Minute podcast, I have film critic Scott Danielson. Join us every week as a new podcast airs on RadioHorror.com. Supernatural Creatures and Lore covers the monsters mythology connected to the TV series Supernatural, the Dead TV podcast covering canceled television shows in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genre, and the Lost Boys Movie Minute, where we break down the film Lost Boys one minute to five minutes at a time. Join us every week on the RadioHorror.com network. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Son of Dracula from 1943, directed by Robert C. Mack. Ben, what did you think? Well, this isn't the first time we've seen this movie. Yeah. We've seen this before. And Son of Dracula is not, I think, traditionally well regarded uh, by, like, the common, like, universal horror movie fan base, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, the UFB. <laughs> sure. I will say that I had a bit of a different perspective on it now, seeing it kind of more firmly in the context of what was coming out in 1943. Yeah, alongside um, its contemporaries. Yeah, and I, I I have a different view of it now. And I, you know, against not only the movies that were coming out from other studios, but against the movies that were coming out from Universal itself. So yeah, I have mixed feelings about this movie. I think there are things that it does poorly, and there are other things where I can tell that it's clearly trying. I would agree with that. I get really tired of this movie, mainly because I don't like one of the main characters, Dr. Harry Brewster. I don't get him. I don't really understand your dislike for him, but I also... We'll get into it. ...have a whole thing where I don't think he's necessary to the movie and didn't need to be there. Definitely, definitely. But I don't, like, have any ill will towards the man. Ugh. He should have gotten staked. No. Yeah. See, like that. Um, I don't. That's a level of <laughs> anger that I just find perplexing. Um, I think that I have a level of appreciation for this movie that I am a little surprised about. But we can talk about that in the discussion. Why don't you tell us what the movie is actually about? Right. I suspect it's about Dracula's son. Maybe. The son of Dracula is set in Louisiana. The swamps. Yes, of the American uh, South. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say Louisiana. We're mostly centered on a plantation called Dark Oaks, <laughs> which like... Great. Ooh, gothic. American Southern Gothic is what we're doing here. And Dark Oaks is owned by the Caldwell family, which consists of absolutely ancient Colonel Caldwell, probably Civil War veteran Colonel Caldwell, who knows... Uh, his daughter, Catherine, who is like the 1940s equivalent of a goth, and his other daughter, Claire, who isn't important. That's Evelyn Anchors. Yes. Uh, Catherine is played by Louise Albritton. Catherine is in love 
with Frank Stanley, who is... Never trust a man with two first names. Frank Stanley is a man in the story. And... He might as well be Jonathan Harker. Yeah, I mean... David Manners. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a bit better than that. But that's mostly because of the way that, like, movie heroes have evolved since 1931. Like, he's not just this, like, stand-around-do-nothing kind of like, oh dear, I wouldn't want to have something happen to me kind of guy from 1931. Instead, he's like a rugged American who carries a gun with him in his pocket. Like, <laughs> anyways. Okay, back on track. In line with her sort of morbid fascinations, Catherine has invited... Count Alucard from Hungary to come to Dark Oaks. And they mention repeatedly through this movie that Count Alucard is from Hungary, that Count Dracula was from Hungary, all of this kind of stuff. And that fits with the way that Dracula's daughter talked about Dracula as well. Count Alucard's stuff arrives on the train, but Alucard does not. Uh, And meeting Alucard at the train is Frank and family friend Dr. Harry Brewster, who's, who's like an old doctor. And Dr. Brewster, looking at uh, the seal on Alucard's trunk, is like, Alucard Dracula. Dracula. And it's like, yep. yep. <laughs> Anyways, uh, there's going like, to be... You could have at least, like, Cheney, you could have at least done, like, an anagram or whatever it's called. It's a bad... It's bad. It's bad. So the Caldwells are having a reception for Count Alucard uh, at Dark Oaks, but he doesn't show up. Uh, So Colonel Caldwell goes to bed since he's old, and that's when Lon Chaney Jr. as Count Alucard enters the picture as a flying bat flies into the Colonel's room and definitely sucks him dry, and he dies. Then, in his form as Count Alucard, he arrives at Dark Oaks. The will of the colonel splits the estate into Claire getting all of the money and assets and things, and Catherine getting the plantation itself. And everyone's like, well, how are you going to like run the plantation and, and afford it and everything and, and keep it going? She's like, oh, don't worry about that. And everyone seems to think that means that she's going to be marrying Frank because they've been in love forever and that somehow that'll help. That's not what happens. <laughs> Instead, she marries Count Alucard in a midnight ceremony where they just sort of wake up the justice of the peace in the middle of the night and get him to marry them. Eloping. Small wedding. Right. You know, Sophie Turner and one of the Jonas Brothers just did that (laughs) in Vegas. And I will say that Lon Chaney Jr.'s performance as Alucard in this movie gets a lot of flack. And we'll probably go into it a lot more later. But I do want to say he's at least trying. Mm -hmm. It is kind of cool that he's, like, super tall. That gives Dracula kind of like an imposing figure. He's also our first Dracula to have a mustache, and I just wanted to point that out. And it, it's good? It's good. Yeah. No, Dracula is always good with a mustache. Anyways, so Frank has been following them, and he's like, what the fuck? And confronts them back at Dark Oaks, and, you know, he's a dude with a gun, and Alucard is Dracula. Vampire, yeah. So he just swats Frank aside like he's a fly, and Frank pulls out a gun and shoots Alucard, but Kay happened to be standing right behind him, and the bullets go right through Alucard and shoot Kay and kill her. And Frank's like, 
shit, son, and just jumps out a window and runs into the swamp. Which, like, I can understand bullets not harming a vampire. Mm -hmm. Okay. But going through him, he ain't a ghost. Well, he can turn into mist and shit, right? I do think the idea is supposed to be that, like, he's not, like, physically material. That he, like, becomes ethereal and the bullets pass through him. Okay. Frank runs away and eventually ends up at Dr. Brewster's. Now, Dr. Brewster has been like, hmm, Alucard, Dracula. And he phones up a Hungarian professor friend of his, Professor Laszlo. He's like, hey, didn't the last Count Dracula die in, like, the 15th century? And Laszlo's like, yes. He's like, huh, wasn't he rumored to be a vampire? Sure was. The rumors also say that as a vampire, he was destroyed in the 1890s. And it's like, huh, that's interesting, because Stoker's novel is from the 1890s, but the actual universal adaptation was set in presumably the current day in 1931, because there were, like, cars and shit. So that's kind of a weird retcon. Um, Not as weird as the fact that after getting off the phone with Professor Laszlo, um, Dr. Brewster just, you know pulls his copy of Bram Stoker's Dracula off his shelf and starts reading it, you know, to figure out more about Dracula. When Frank arrives at Brewster's, Brewster's kind of, like, ready for Frank's tale of, hey, I shot this dude and he didn't die kind of stuff. Like, he's he's kind of already on this page. And, you know, Frank falls asleep at Brewster's, and Brewster's like, okay, I'm going to go out to Dark Oaks, check up on things. He shows up, he sneaks around the house for a bit, goes down into the cellar, finds the boxes of Earth, and that's when Dracula catches him. Alucard. Alucard catches him looking at the boxes of Earth and is like, hey, what are you doing in here? He's like, well, I I came to the house to check up on things, and, you know, the door was open, and I came inside, and I thought I heard someone rummaging around in the basement, so I went to check. And Alucard has a pretty good line, which is, I also thought I heard someone (laughs) rummaging around in the basement and came to check. And he takes Brewster upstairs to the bedroom and shows him Catherine, sitting in bed, definitely alive. And Catherine's like, hey, so Alucard and I are married. Um, We're not seeing people anymore, especially not during the day ever, because we're going to be busy with Count Alucard's scientific research that I'm helping (laughs) him with. And I feel like off-screen, Alucard was like, "What's, what's a good excuse for for not seeing people ever again. Like, what's what's something people do in America in the 40s? Uh, uh, science! Science is the... Ex- <laughs> like... <laughs> Anyways. So Brewster goes home. Uh, Frank has disappeared by morning, and Brewster's like, you know, what happened? And it turns out that Frank has gone to the sheriff's office to turn himself in for the murder of Catherine. So, you know... Brewster goes over to the sheriff's office and is like, no, I just talked to Catherine. She's defo alive. And the sheriff's like, all right, this is fucked up. Takes everybody over to Dark Oaks to see what's up, where they find that Catherine is, you know, lying in a coffin because it's daytime. And they're like, well, clearly Frank did shoot him, and clearly, Brewster, you were trying to cover it up. So now everyone's in a lot of trouble. They take Catherine's body to the morgue. Laszlo the professor, arrives in town, and him and Brewster start trying to figure out, like, what they can do, you know, what's going on, what's happening. We get kind of the usual bits of, like, vampire exposition. Yeah, Leslie's kind of playing the Van Helsing, yeah. And Dracula shows up at... Alucard. At uh, their house, (laughs) Laszlo and Brewster's, 
basically to say, like, fuck off, I'm uber-powerful, there's nothing you can do. Frank is in jail, and Catherine, who by this point has been turned into a vampire, of course, that's why she's still alive, uh, mists herself into Frank's cell to be like, hey, I understand you're upset, but here's what's going on. So Alucard is Dracula, which, duh. Um, Laszlo at one point says he thinks he's a descendant of the original Count Dracula, since Count Dracula was destroyed in the 1890s, um, which I guess makes him, like, that explains the title, Son of Dracula, and as I said in the intro, like, he would still literally be Count Dracula because of the way that names work. Um, but anyways, Catherine is like, yeah, so he's Dracula. I want to live forever, and I love you, Frank, and I want to live forever with you in Dark Oaks. So, I invited Dracula over from Transylvania, (laughs) pretended to be into him so that he'll turn me into a vampire. (laughs) Then, you're going to go destroy him like the hero of a vampire movie. And then after he's destroyed, I'm going to turn you into a vampire and we will live happily ever after forever as immortal vampires. Actually, she only really uses the word immortal. We learn in this movie that apparently vampire is like a slur to vampires, and we don't use that word, um, which is super fucking weird. Yeah, that that feels like something a writer was, felt like he was really clever about, yeah, but it's, it's not. the B word. So Frank is like, you know, pretty unsure what to do about all of this. Uh, during this whole visit... Like, Brewster and Laszlo come by, Claire comes by, the the jail keeper comes by, like, because they keep hearing him talking to somebody, and every time, you know, Claire just (laughs) goes invisible or whatever, and they go away, and then she just steps out from camera right, and, like, back into the scene and keeps giving him instructions. Eventually, you know, because she can turn into mist and shit, she mists over, gets the keys, lets Frank out, he escapes, and everyone's like, oh no, Frank Stanley's escaped! And so now Brewster and Laszlo and the cops are all chasing after Frank, and Frank is running into the swamps where Catherine has told him Dracula's hiding resting place is. His box of dirt. Right. Frank heads over, finds the tomb, Dracula shows up, and he's like, hey, you idiot. Daylight's like an hour away. Like, you could have just staked me then. Like, this is, you are an idiot for coming here now. (laughs) And Frank's like, am I? And reveals that he's just torched the whole box of Earth and it's on fire. And Dracula just starts freaking out like, no, you couldn't. No, you don't. What have you done? Ah!" (laughs) Starts Um, using planks of wood to put up the fire. Try to bat the fire out. Like, I guess Dracula just doesn't have a very good, like, understanding of, you know, physics. Thermodynamics. Thermodynamics, yeah. Um, He gets really desperate and freaks out in, like, a very... Lon Chaney way. Yeah. yeah, the way that Chaney portrays desperation very well. And he basically starts choking out Frank. And Frank is going to die. Except that's when the sun comes out. And then Alucard or Dracula or whoever the hell he is uh, turns into a skeleton and dies. And Frank's like, cool, dope, on to my next task. And heads over to Dark Oaks where um, Catherine is in her coffin. She's told Frank where the location is. The cops and everybody show up at the burning tomb of Dracula, and they're like, wow, shit, I guess he really was Dracula. He turned into a skeleton and everything. He's got the Dracula signet ring. Wow. And Brewster's like, I know where Frank is going next, because Brewster 
knows everything that's going to happen in this movie before it happens. He and read is, the script. Right. He's not surprised by any of it. But I was surprised, and I think the audience is too, when you get to Dark Oaks and find out that Frank hasn't joined Catherine in the Legion of the Undead. He has instead set her box and her coffin on fire and destroyed her, and we watch her burn, and that's the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Lon Chaney Jr. first, because I think that's like the elephant in the room, as it were. I think Lon Chaney Jr. would be a good Dracula if they dubbed all of his lines. Yeah, he's kind of good until he speaks. Yeah, like... Because he just talks like Lon Chaney. He, he just... doesn't try to do anything about his his voice. He doesn't try to sound mysterious. It's just like him, like, I too thought I heard someone in the basement. It's, yeah, he sounds like Larry Talbot. Yeah. Right? Like, he's, you're right. Like, he's not, like, I don't necessarily expect Lon Chaney Jr. to do an accent. Yeah. Right? But you would expect someone to at least sort of assume some kind of commanding presence. You're Count Dracula, for fuck's sake. Like, but instead, yeah, he's just like, I am Count Dracula. Shucks. I can fuck you up. Yeah. Like, (laughs) he's just very calm about everything, and it's just his soft-spoken... Like, Lon Chaney Jr.'s just very soft-spoken, and his voice is just so American, and it's just such a dopey voice. But he does look good with the cape and the mustache and the graying hair, and, yeah, the fact that he's, like, six foot four or whatever the hell. Like, he's an imposing presence. But, yeah, the second he starts talking, it doesn't work. And also, uh, desperate is, like, not an emotion that really works well with Dracula. Yeah, I mean, like, he pulls off the scene when his box is on fire, mm-hmm. but you're totally right that, like, I don't know, I... Dracula just shaking a dude and being like, what have you done? Is, like, such a weird thing. And on the other side of the spectrum, too, it's very easy to see Cheney as Dracula resort to fisticuffs, whereas Lugosi probably would have, like, taken a a glove and slapped you across the face and laughed at you. Yeah, he feels like the kind of guy who might get into, like, a physical scuffle with you, and that's really weird. But I do think one thing that Cheney does well is sell the idea that Dracula is, like, pretty arrogant and pretty sure of himself, and that's part of what spells his downfall in this movie. Because, like, there are a lot of people in this movie that Dracula nearly kills or, like, has a chance to kill or could have easily killed, would have been better off killing. Like, there are numerous scenes where, like, he's choking out Frank or or uh, he chokes out Brewster at one point. Like, he's in the same room with all the people who are dangerous to him at multiple times in the movie and could have easily just killed them and just doesn't for no reason. And that's why he's dead at the end of the movie. There's a really neat shot where um he mists out of his coffin that's floating in the swamp, and then he like floats over the swamp over to Catherine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way Cheney kind of carries himself as he's floating, it's it really works. Mm-hmm. Like it feels right, especially I don't know what it is about it, but especially for like a Southern Gothic type of vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it works really well. Yeah, I think the special effects are one of the things that works in this movie uh, compared to other vampire movies. I mean, when the vampires are bats, it's still, you know, a fake bat. In this case, it's... Motorized. 
yeah, so the wings are flapping up and down through that rather than being on a, a fishing rod. But, like, it's corny, but it's probably still a step up from every fake bat we've seen so far. Oh, what was that one? The devil the bat? The devil bat. <laughs> well, okay, so I definitely see what you're saying. I agree that, like, the effects of the bat and mist to person are pretty cool. I think but, the mist is better than the bat. But they they show it in, like, the first ten minutes, and it's kind of like, that's it. You know, like, there's no, like, climax in terms of the special effects. It doesn't go up from there. There's no, like, wow factor later with any of the special effects. Um, and even, like, when watching it, mainly when Cheney goes from bat form to Cheney form... Um, it's more like a, oh, neat, not a, whoa, like with Invisible Man. I guess I was really impressed with the mist effects, and partially that's because they weren't the same effect every time. I think the bat to Chaney thing was the same animation every single time, but the mist has direction to it. Like, if he's coming in from under a door, you can see it come in from under the door, uh, you know, if it's flowing up from inside the coffin, it flows up from inside the coffin. I think one of the most impressive shots for me was we see Louise Albritton as uh, Catherine inside the jail cell. She turns to mist. The bars are still in front of the mist. The mist flows through the bars to the other side, and then she's Catherine again. That was really impressive because one of the things that old-fashioned movies that did effects using optical compositing or plates have a lot of trouble doing well is, like, that sense of depth. Mm -hmm. um, so I was really impressed with the mist animation. But you are right in the sense that, like, I guess if the effects build to anything, it's that when Dracula dies, he turns into a skeleton. But that's just the shot of the hand. And it's just a, like, the hand's there, and then we crossfade to it being a skeleton. Yeah. We've seen... You know, the monster turns to skeleton when it dies in other movies before done better. Yeah. The other thing that's like, uh, I'll, I'll lump it into this conversation about effects, even though it's not quite the same. So there's a lot of like theremin or like electric organ I, use. Yeah, in this. I think it's so it's not a theremin, um, but it has that kind of sound, but it is a Hammond organ. So it's okay. an electric organ. Um, and th this isn't a fault of the movie itself, but, like, after the overusage of a Hammond organ in 50s and even 60s, like, B-movies, mm -hmm. it's really hard not to hear that type of sound and not find something funny. So, I see totally what you're saying. I had kind of an opposite reaction to the Hammond organ. Okay. Um, partially, it was just relief at a universal horror movie that had new music. Yeah. Because I don't think we've had, like, an original score since Son of Frankenstein. Phantom. Eh, did Phantom count? <laughs> it's not on the list. <laughs> that's, um, that's fair. Um, so, yeah, it was cool to hear some new score. And the other thing that about the Hammond organ is you're right that it has this sound that really says, like, ooh, spooky haunted house, blah, uh, that sort of is you know, very cheesy in 1950s movies. But this is the first time I think we've heard it. Like, I can't remember hearing an electric instrument in any previous horror movies up to this point. Mm -hmm. And so it gives this movie kind of a feeling of, like, 
it's a classic element of the genre arriving for the first time. And so I get your point about from a modern perspective, it feels corny. But there was also a sense watching it for me that was like, oh, cool. Like, this is the first time this is a thing. Yeah, and like I said, it's not the movie's movie's fault. fault. I thought it was interesting how they brought together some themes from, or some, like, plot elements from Dracula and Dracula's daughter, in that in this movie we're following Kay, or Catherine, she goes by Kay for most of the movie, and her wanting to be a vampire, Mm -hmm. and, like questioning, like, what her desires are, because at one point, because she's so goth, so morbid, she's at risk of being institutionalized by Dr. Brewster. Fucking Dr. Brewster. What is his relationship to the family? I don't get it. That's an, that's a side discussion. We will talk about that in a minute. Put a pin in that. And it's actually, like, Kay's choice to become a vampire, mm. which is unique. Before, like, I don't think we've ever seen... Like, oh, I want to be a vampire. In Dracula's Daughter, it was the first, like, oh, woe is me, I'm a vampire. Yes. Um, So it's neat to see the other side of the coin, especially with a woman showing, like, hey, I want this. And her social circle being like, no, don't. Yeah, Catherine's a really good character. Um, She is, like, a very strong clear character you understand like what she wants and what her deal is and what makes her unique is that what she wants and what her deal is is not what anybody's deal is in any of these movies ever right uh and louise albritton gives like a really good performance i think i think she's really good in this part i've never i don't know you know what else she's really done but i liked her in this yeah i think the idea of having you know, a Hollywood movie in 1943 that's about a character who wants to be a vampire is really different. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something where, you know, it feels like something you would expect from, like, I don't know, a Tim Burton movie in the 90s, right? Where it's like, oh, I want to be the spooky weird monster, you know? I think there's an episode of Buffy that's like that. <laughs> um, but it's really different here. And I really appreciated that. I think she's a really good character. And I think when we learn that, like... The idea that she wants Dracula to turn her into a vampire is a twist enough. But then when we find out, like, her plan is to double-cross Dracula and destroy him so that she can turn her boyfriend into a vampire, like, that's a really neat, like, double twist in the movie, you know? And it also is interesting because it adds a component to the vampire mythos that we haven't quite seen before, and that is that once you've turned, you kind of become more arrogant than perhaps you were in real real life, in alive life. Right. In your past life. Yes. Um, because she's already started the process for Frank to become a vampire, regardless of what he wants. Yeah. So it's interesting that, like... Her Vampires t- don't care about consent. <laughs> well, it's interesting that, like, her villainous turn, honestly, is about taking someone else's choice away when, like, she's compelling in the beginning because she's making her own choices. It's also interesting because I think it confuses, or at least makes complex, her morality, right? Because she's not just, like, a femme fatale vamp who wanted to be a vampire, literally, 
like, which is kind of what she is at the start of the movie, but when she says, like, no, we're going to destroy Dracula, like, that's the plan, it's like, well, destroying Dracula is something that the good guy usually does, right? So then, like, are you like, well, like, what's wrong with Frank being with her then? Like, what's wrong with being immortal and stuff? But I guess, you know, the unspoken thing is that they lose their eternal souls and Christianity and all yeah. that. Well, she's also like, oh, man, looks like we're going to have to kill my sister, Claire. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> speaking of Claire, I'm not sure why Evelyn Anker's character exists in this movie at all. The character of Claire, when you're watching the movie, she feels like her point is that once Kay turns evil, she'll be there for Frank to fall in love with. So then we'll have, like, a nice, moral, good couple who will get a happy ending at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point in the film, she just kind of vanishes. Yeah. And she's never really important before that, either. Like, she's a vessel for some people to give some exposition to, but there are other characters who could have served that role as easily. Like, she doesn't really have a lot of a purpose. Um, There's a whole character I didn't even mention in my plot summary, Queen Zimba, who is a, quote, Hungarian gypsy, unquote, who apparently Kay brought over from Hungary to just put in a shack in the middle of the Louisiana swamp so she could be a swamp witch. And she goes to Queen Zimba at the start of the movie uh, to be like, hey, Queen Zimba, what's up? And Queen Zimba's like, hey, you're in a horror movie. Things are going to get spooky and weird. And then Dracula shows up and kills her. And that's that's it. That's all she does in the movie. Like, her only purpose was to tell us that spooky shit was about to go down? Yeah, I bought a ticket to a movie called Son of Dracula. Like, <laughs> of course. I mean, to be fair, part of that is setting up the atmosphere of a horror movie, right? Like, you can't fault a horror movie for being, like, hinting that spookiness is going to happen. That's how you build atmosphere. Yeah, but it's such a weird way to do it because you have to explain, like, Yes, this is this weird old woman from a different country who I brought over to this country and then set up as a witch in the swamp and then Dracula kills her. And then afterwards, there's like a whole scene they have to do to explain why that will have no plot repercussions where it's like, hey, so didn't she die? And she's like, yeah, how did you find out? And it's like, someone told me. And it's like, well, it's not important. And he's like, I don't know, you were with her when she died. And it's like, yeah, but she died of a heart attack and you can't prove anything. Like, <laughs> it's like it's so weird. Yeah, um, yeah. The characters of, okay. It's almost like meant to be a misdirect or a red herring to be like, oh no, Kay will be in danger to make the twist that she's really like setting the trap for Alucard. Right. More of a, more of a twist. Yeah, it's just, it doesn't. It doesn't pay off, yeah, right? Yeah, It's like, I get it, Kurt C. and Mac. Like, you have this thing where all creepy exposition has to be given by, like, weird old women. But, like, it doesn't work here. With that all said, I have an opinion about Dr. Brewster that I would like to express before you get into your thing. Because you have this look on your face that tells me that you want to rant for a good half hour about Dr. Brewster. Oh, it's like, it's like a half minute. Okay. But go ahead. Well... So speaking of characters who don't serve a purpose, the characters of Dr. Brewster and Professor Laszlo should have been combined into one old man exposition deliverer. Because I get, like, on the surface why you would have two. It's like, this is the guy who lives in the town and knows the family and is interested in helping them. It would be weird if he knew everything about vampires already. 
so let's have this other guy who's a Hungarian who knows stuff about vampires. But, like, A, wouldn't it be more interesting if Brewster had to, like, find this shit out for himself, right? Where it's like, hmm, I'm suspicious. Now I have to go on, like, an investigation. To the library. Right. B, he has a copy of Dracula. What's Laszlo going to tell you that owning a copy of Dracula is not going (laughs) to tell you, right? And then the other problem is because of those two characters being two characters, you have to spend so much of the movie with them talking to each other, just delivering exposition to each other. Like Brewster telling Laszlo who the Caldwells are, and Laszlo then telling Brewster what vampires are, and the audience sitting there bored because they already know both of those things, that it takes attention in the movie away from the characters who should be the protagonists or the POV characters. Um, Like, this movie should have stayed much more consistently with Frank's POV. Yes. Because from... That's where the horror is. Exactly, exactly. Absolutely, you are right. Because from the moment Frank follows... Alucard and Kay to get married and then confronts them and then is like, what the fuck? You know, and shoots Kay and and he's freaking out and he doesn't know if he's crazy and then, you know, he gets driven to the jail and then Kay's trying to convince him to go burn the, you know, Dracula and like, he's the one who's having horrific things happen to him, right? And if you just sort of sit with Brewster, like, he constantly protests through the whole movie that everything that's happening is unthinkable. It's unthinkable that anyone could want to be a vampire. It's it's unthinkable that Frank could have shot anyone. But despite saying that all the time, he never seems to break a sweat over anything. Like, Dracula comes to his house and, like, nearly kills him. And afterwards, he's like, Ah, I see, Professor Laszlo. Dracula is real, I guess. Yeah, it's like the movie can't decide if people remember who Dracula is with, like, how weirdly they point out the Alucard Dracula mm-hmm. moment. But then they also just explain again and again and again and again what a vampire is and how you kill them or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, just like make up your mind, one or the other. Well, it's, I think the, it's the Incredible Hulk problem, right? Yeah, it's yeah. The, it's the we don't want to make a call on whether this is a sequel or a reboot. We're yeah. just going to try and thread the needle for both. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Dr. Harry Brewster, <laughs> what is his relationship to this family? What is his relationship to this town? He has a line that's like, if the Count was staying in town, I would know about it. So I was like, oh, is he like the sheriff or the mayor? Or like, is he some high up? And then it's like, you're close enough to this family to suggest to Claire to institutionalize her sister because she's goth? I mean, I think the reason why he's saying take out an insanity indictment against Claire is because he's worried about the idea of, like, all of the Caldwell's, like, money and property in their plantation going to this weird count from nowhere. Because at first, before they think he's Dracula, they at least are good enough to recognize, like, Alucard is not a Hungarian name. This guy's probably lying about being a count. Because that was really common in the 40s was... Due to the influx of refugees and stuff, you had tons of immigrants who were like, hey, I'm king, you know, so-and-so from this made-up European nation and, like, running scams on people. Um, So, like... Do you think that's, like, the origin of the email scam of, like, I'm... (laughs) A Nigerian prince? Yeah. Um, But, yeah, so, like, that's kind of what he suspects. So, like, the idea is you're trying to, like... The only legal recourse to, like, prevent this is to say, like, well... Kay can't make these decisions because she's not in her right mind. 
the impression I get is that Brewster is like the town doctor. Because later during a scene where he's talking to Laszlo about vampires, this woman just comes into his house and is like, Doctor, my child's been murdered by Dracula! I know the cure. Let's paint crucifixes on the kid's neck. Yeah, where he was bitten. That's so (laughs) fucking weird. But yeah, so I get the impression that he's like a doctor in town and that he's a family friend probably because he was either Colonel Caldwell or whatever, like the Caldwell family doctor and has probably known the Colonel for a million years because they're both fucking 97 years old. That's the impression I get. But you're right that the movie doesn't like... Tell us any of these things. And they spend so much time giving exposition about what vampires are to the point where they repeat themselves. At least tell me why Brewster's in this movie, Buds. Yeah, like he's just kind of there. And you could just sort of infer these things. But it's it's not the biggest problem. Oh, I... I don't quite understand your hatred for him. I think he's unnecessary a lot of the times or could have been combined with Laszlo but I find and like I I find his attitude of like yep vampires to be kind of weird but like I don't quite understand your like visceral hatred it's probably something to do with the fact that he's like that's unheard of in regards to everything but then like it is wooden yes like it's probably like come on if you're going to be here like do something (laughs) I don't know I just I think the moment that I'm just like who the fuck are you? It's when he's like, Claire, I think we gotta institutionalize your sister. She's too morbid. And it's like, excuse me, who the fuck are you? Get out of my fucking house. This is such like a... (laughs) You're having such an extreme reaction. And I'm not saying that that reaction is wrong or incorrect or whatever. It's just like, I don't have that reaction. (laughs) So it's very, like, weird to see you have that reaction, but that doesn't necessarily make that reaction wrong. For sure. It's just like, whoa! (laughs) Um, something else I want to bring up about this, this movie. There's a moment in this movie where they try to make it about, like, social problems. Really? I didn't catch this at all, maybe. Oh, about the war? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There is, like, some... Some thinly veiled, like... Alucard's come to our country after ravaging his own because of our virile young race, strong race, something like that. They keep saying it, and I don't know what they mean by that. But the implication (laughs) is that Hitler's ravaged his own country, and now he's going to come to America to ravage ours. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably there because it is a Seedmac movie after all like it's a sea of mac joint so like turning dracula into a nazi metaphor is not like <laughs> completely unexpected i don't know if i would have thought of it if it wasn't for the fact that the movie ends with an ad to buy war bonds yes but when during that scene it was very noticeable because like for most of the movie it's shot from like mid up uh-huh for the most part during this it was like close up some people's faces practically looking into the camera being like the war is bad. <laughs> war is going to come here unless we stake it in its heart. <laughs> I mean, listen, man. We gotta go fight the Nazis. Punch Nazis. Yeah, that it's, it's a little weird, but, like, on the other hand, that's always kind of been the point of Dracula. Mm-hmm. Is it, like, the invasion narrative? Yeah. Right? So, it's not like, it's not like you're taking this character and turning him into something he's not. 
for sure. Right? And, like, yes, they keep calling him Hungarian all the time, but it's like, they actually could have had, if they wanted to explicitly make Dracula anti-Nazi, like, they actually could have done better if they had been right and called him Romanian, because Romania was working with the Nazis at this point in the war. Like, yeah. you could have actually made it more explicit by doing your research better. Yeah, I was thinking about the invasion literature thing, too. When invasion literature started as a genre, um, it was more focused on the, like, an enemy coming to our shores that is, like, technologically advanced. It's basically white people being afraid that they're going to be colonized. Well, yeah, it's, it's war, that's what War of the Worlds was, right? Yeah, it was yeah. the idea of turning the British Empire against itself. It's the Star Trek thing where you're like, oh, what if someone treated you the way you treat other people? But I mean, like, traditional invasion literature at its roots was, like, not science fiction. It was like, no, someone's coming. Yeah, and it was then usually it the Germans in, yeah, in old yeah. school stuff. Um, but then it more morphed into this science fiction subgenre. And even with Dracula, the novel, and it's less pronounced here, or at least poorly handled here, the old world invading the new through means that we are ill-equipped to deal with, i.e. folklore. <laughs> well, really what, what it's doing in both Dracula and explicitly in this movie is the idea that the threat is essentially the idea of, like, interbreeding. It's, like, a really racist idea that, like, the other races will never be able to conquer the white race through, like, military means or, you know, technology or whatever, because America is the greatest, most advanced country on Earth. But they can conquer us if they all come over here and marry our women and interbreed with us, because then the white race will cease to exist and there only will be these, you know, whatever. Like, that's... That's the heart of white supremacy and also the fears that Dracula is about, which is some dude from another country coming and taking your women. And that's still here in this version of Dracula. It's just subverted because she's like, right, but then I'm going to kill you and take your powers and then become immortal (laughs) with my boyfriend. Yeah, a little bit of a a Black Widow situation going on. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's marrying her for her... It's, they're both gold diggers, okay? Yeah, yeah, Like, it's great. he's marrying her for her plantation and, like, supply of fresh, virile food. And <laughs> she's marrying him for his, like, supernatural, like, superpowers. Yeah. Yeah. Which is odd that that's, like... A, that that's the theme. Yeah. Um, we also have this, like theme that you pointed out about, like, like the racist theme you pointed out just now, when, like, the horror, the most horror in this comes from Frank's point of view. Right. Because he goes from being, like, like, the girl who I've always loved and who I thought always loved me, we were engaged, overnight marries this guy? What the hell? And then, like, I accidentally shoot her? Oh my god, I killed Kay. And, then, and also this guy might be, like, super strong and invincible, maybe. But I feel like he's more ridden, overridden with guilt. Yeah, and he's also not sure of his sanity, right? Yeah, and then, again, not sure of his sanity when Kay visits him in jail. And, you know, at moments he he gives this feeling of Renfield of, like, 
sure, yeah, I'll do whatever you say, and then having moments of clarity of, like, what am I saying? That doesn't make sense. Like, why would I do that? And this kind of battling of self. And you you really do think that he's going to be with Kay after he defeats Dracula, but then he lights her on fire, and, like, he looks so haunted yeah. after. Like, this is where the horror is. Yeah, the movie should have been from Frank's point of view, and I think it would have also enhanced the Southern Gothic atmosphere if, you know, what the movie had been about was seeing, like, a normal-ish small town in Florida or whatever, and this, like, normal-ish group of Americans who also are rich and have a plantation, and seeing their world, like, slowly get weird, and things slowly start, you know... First the colonel dies, and then it turns out he changed his will, and, and Kay's getting everything, and then she leaves me, and then this dude shows up, and then suddenly everyone's a vampire. Like, seeing it like that, and you know, having it be step-by-step, step, things getting out of control and getting more bizarre, would have been a lot better than like focusing on these two old guys being like, So I think he's a vampire. Yes, he is a vampire. You must kill Ah, I was right all along. Yes, let us go and kill vampire. Like, um, but for all this movie does wrong, there are a lot of things I do admire about it. For one, compared to, say, the last two Frankenstein movies, things actually happen in this movie. It's not 70 minutes of build-up to then the monster shows up in the last 10 minutes and then the castle blows up. Yeah, yeah. Um, the plot itself... Uh, as we've said, that has a lead character who actually wants to be a vampire is quite daring, I think. The ending where Frank tragically destroys Catherine, uh, who cannot be saved, uh, is also like very different tone than the typical universal horror movie, which usually ends with the breeding pair making it out just fine. Mm -hmm. Which is, again, why I thought Claire was in the movie. Because it was like, either they were going to save Catherine, or Frank would end up with Claire. But neither of those things happen, right? I think the film's visuals are right at home with Robert Siedmack's future in film noir. Agreed. Um, there's a lot of great use of moving camera mm -hmm. in this movie, which I always notice in these B-horror movies, because they typically don't have the money to do anything cool with the camera. The time... Really? Yeah, yeah. Because you have to plan that shit out, yeah. Um, we've already mentioned the effects work, but I think it's the first time that we've seen effects work that really sells a vampire's powers, for once. And also, this is finally a movie set in the swamps that looks like Swampland. Yeah, that is true. I am disappointed that we don't see any alligators. <laughs> Can you just imagine, like, Dracula having to fight off an alligator? Oh, man. Vampire alligators. Man. I can imagine the poster now. <laughs> but, like, a lot of these risks that this movie is taking, the things that it's doing that are new and interesting, to me, they feel like Universal really investing in trying to bite off some of what has made the RKO films successful while still maintaining elements of their traditional universal formula. Mm -hmm. And I admire that effort, even if it's not 100% successful. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, what I think is interesting about this movie is that it's not as ambitious in premise as Dracula's Daughter, mm. but it's not as hand-tied as Dracula's Daughter, so it's actually able to 
achieve more of what they are ambitious about. Yes. Um, yeah, it, and, it, it gets what it's going for. Yeah, and it's also a competent film. Um, there's parts where it's a little boring, unintentionally silly at others, but there's a really interesting story going on here between Kay and Frank that I found really worthwhile and compelling. Yeah, I mean, like, I think if we want to talk about the weak point in this movie, it's probably the script, and probably Robert shouldn't have fired his brother. Because I'm, you know, I, I feel like if this had been Kurt C. and Mac from beginning to end writing the script, mm-hmm. rather than bringing Eric Taylor in halfway through, we probably would have gotten a stronger product. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Page, who plays Frank Stanley, in my opinion, is the MVP. Yeah, I think uh, Louise Albritton also does a very good job as Catherine. Yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, everyone else is not great. Yeah. Although, Lon Chaney at least is trying. Like, that's the one thing. He is miscast as Dracula. He does not do a good job, but it's kind of not his fault. Watching the movie, you can tell that he's trying his best to be the best Dracula he can be, but it's like casting Danny DeVito as Michael Jordan. Like, it was just a bad call. For sure. So where would you like to rank this? Well, Sarah, when I started looking around for where to rank Son of Dracula, I knew one thing for sure. I liked this better than Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Mm-hmm. So Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is currently at number 34 on the list. Uh, so I started kind of looking up from there. To be honest, like right away I was like, I'm not sure if this is better than Black Room. Oh, interesting. But I thought, you know, well, let's keep looking up. Let's see what's above there. And my hard ceiling, where I was like, no, definitely not, is at number 25. I think The Leopard Man is better than this, just because The Leopard Man has parts that are actually scary. Um, So that's kind of my range, is the highest I would put this is 26, and the lowest I would put this is 34. That is pretty much exactly my range. Oh, okay. Um... I felt that Man Who Changed His Mind, which is at 26, was unique and very fun, very scary. It had, like, enough of its own ambition that I felt that it was better than this movie. Mm -hmm. So my ceiling was 26, and I, I felt like this could go above the 41 Jekyll and Hyde because, like, it was, it's interesting to compare... The strange casting choices. Right, sure. The the inappropriateness of Spencer Tracy versus the inappropriateness of um, Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah, because like they're both doing their best and both doing pretty good, but just it's it's a little odd and awkward. Um, now Jacqueline Hyde has money behind it, and also really fabulous acting. Right, like sure that movie is bonkers, but. Even a broken clock is right twice a day type of deal. Yeah, so, it, like, everyone making that movie was supremely talented, even if it was a bad idea to make that movie. Yeah. Yeah, when I was looking, my floor was Frankenstein meets the Wolfman at 34. But honestly, I, I probably would have, if I were to narrow this range, it would be 26 to uh, 28. 28 hmm. being Freaks. So you think this is better than Freaks? Potentially. Part of me wants to put this between... Jekyll and Hyde and Freaks, and the other part of me wants to put this between Black Room and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Mm. Everything in between those, yeah, everything in between Freaks and Black Room is such like a weird wishy-washy space. I feel like every movie in that range there is like a weird compromise. 
Yeah. Um, where it, like, it ended up there because we really disagreed or something. Yeah. I think also the Black Room, like, as good as it was, it, it was like a period piece, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, really the only horror came from Karloff's performance. Right. And, like, the inevitability of the ending. Right. Everything else wasn't quite there. So I think that's also why it, it got put here. Okay. Do Whereas we think this movie, you know, it really does maintain that atmosphere throughout all of it. That's fair. Which is probably also why I'm thinking about Freaks, because as good as Freaks is and as hardcore as it does go, um, the other half of it is like a documentary. Right. Okay. Uh, well, let's do that then. So let's put it at number 28, below Jekyll and Hyde and above Freaks. Okay, cool. Yeah. I think, I think you've convinced me there. So entering the list at number 28 is Son of Dracula from 1943, directed by Robert Siedmak. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today. Um, I mentioned quite a few in the opening. Um, You can find links to all of those episodes there. If you would like to appeal this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line on our website through our appeals box or emailing us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Send us appeals, concerns, questions, you missed this movie, anything of the sort, and we will get back to you. You can also talk to us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and you can listen to us on the podcasting app of your choice by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you can leave a rating or a review for the show, that really helps us out. So does sharing the show on social media or to your friends uh, in real life. Another thing that really helps us out is by going to patreon.com slash podcast and signing up to be a patron. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month, and at higher levels you get access to bonus rewards that we put out, like bonus audio from past episodes. Um, and if we hit our Patreon goal of $150 a month, we're going to start doing bonus episodes uh, on horror-adjacent films, like... The Adams Family. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. House of Frankenstein? No, that's definitely happening on the real show. Um, Young Frankenstein. Ooh. So that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Dracula, dead and loving it. No, that movie's terrible. That movie's so bad. But that's horror adjacent. I suppose that's true. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, we just saw a sequel to Dracula. Yeah. Without Bela Lugosi. Correct. So next week we are watching a sequel to Dracula without Dracula, but with Bela Lugosi as not Dracula. It's Return of the Vampire from Columbia Pictures, and it features not Dracula returning in Blitzkrieg-era London. Interesting. Okay. Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.